So yeah, when she died, and, and her obituary said she was the oldest living uh, gold star mother. So that was probably the last one that we lost in 2004. You're listening to the Stories Behind the Stars podcast, and I'm your host, Tatiana Fallon. This podcast is run by the organization Stories Behind the Stars. We have the goal of writing a story for every service American service member killed during World War II. That's over 420,000. We're accomplishing this goal through amazing volunteers who you will hear in this podcast as they research and write these stories. If you're at all interested in becoming a volunteer and researching and writing these stories, please check us out at storiesbehindthestars.org. Thank you so much for your time, and I hope you enjoy this amazing content that we're finding. This is part two of my interview with Jackie Manasco. Um, it's got some great content, some real heart wrenchers, and just like fascinating stories about some Italian Americans and what they went through and just great content. So I hope you enjoy this episode. We're in the middle of our Arlington project. So if you're at all have time, I know summer's hitting and it's busy schedule, but if you have time to help us tell one story, that would be phenomenal. We really could use your help. Another story from Flagstaff, uh, the one that I shared about the uh, flag that was designed in his memory his name was Second Lieutenant Bobby Joe Williams. Um, his family, he, he grew up in Flagstaff, and his family actually uh, owned and operated one of the, what is now um, kind of a notorious bar in Flagstaff. It's where many of the students from the university kind of end up on Thursday nights and things like that. Um, it's also uh, kind of a... a a stopping place on historic route 66 that a lot of people like to check into. It's called the museum club is the name of the bar. So there was some history there with Flagstaff as well. Um, but anyway, he was on a, a bomber that um, was the one with the friendly, friendly fire where the bomb, the bombs were dropped in a bombing run and uh, tore the wing off and the plane went down and the reason why uh, we know the story is that there were three, two or three survivors. I frankly, I'm sorry, I don't remember their names who were able to get back and, and tell what happened, that they were the only ones that survived when the plane crashed. Um, so was that in, in Europe? They, yes, that was, I, I think it was oh, somewhere over Germany. I'm trying to remember, but frankly, I can't remember right now. So many names. I know, right? <laughs> it's hard to keep them all in your head. Um, That's, so he was in a bomber that was hit by friendly mm -hmm. fire in Germany. I think wow. he was the navigator, as I'm remembering. I think he was a navigator. Yep, that's what it says. I'm looking at his... I'm trying to look at my uh, list on Together We Served website. <laughs> <laughs> to see. So how do you... like? I guess I guess they were survivors because they were high enough altitude they could deploy their parachutes and... Bail. Somehow, yeah. Who knows? Uh, Maybe the, the pilot was trying to do as much of a controlled crash as possible. But I do uh, think that, um, I think 
the the report as I'm trying to remember the incident report did say that they saw some parachutes so mm. that's how they knew to maybe look for survivors um and I guess I'll move on to kind of I, I like I said I kind of gotten re derailed or detoured from those young men in Flagstaff um and went on to Pearl Harbor and um for a variety of reasons, I got involved in writing some of the stories there. Um, one of the young men uh, that really made it had an influence on me, his name was uh, Seaman First Class Thomas, I think it's pronounced Gaetano Travato. Um, his, both of his parents were Italian immigrants. Um, and there's sort of an interesting story as to how his mother met his father in terms of, uh, some people writing back to family members, uh, two young men, uh, immigrate to America. They find work out in California, Southern California area, and they write back to family in Italy. And one of them says, we need wives pick me, you know, writes to his sister and his mother and says, pick me out a wife. Now this is not him. This is his parents. And uh, so his mother traveled over with his um, father's sister. <laughs> she was a friend, I suppose. And they, they traveled over and married so it was almost like a little bit of an arranged marriage. <laughs> um, but anyway, he, um, his father died. Um, not, um, I think he was like in, he was like maybe 10 or 11 years old. I'm, I can't remember exactly, but, um, basically his mother was the one that was raising him. And I think there was another brother, um, yeah. And so basically he, the, the other friend that also married the sister of her husband, I know it's, it's, it's complicated. Um, they had a son who was about the same age as Tom, their son, Tom. And so they were like best friends. Both of them, um, were killed, uh, in uh, the attack on Pearl Harbor. Um, they, um, but what was, I guess, so moving to me was that she found out that her son, first she heard he was MIA, obviously. And then in early February of 1942, um, she received the, the telegram that said he had been killed, that he was assumed dead. And one week later, the, these two military officers arrived at her front door. Um, this was in uh, Los Angeles, California, arrived at her front door and told her she had to pack up everything because she had been declared an illegal alien. She had never gotten citizenship. Yes. Talk about unfair and just, you know, almost morally wrong. Here, her son died 
in the attack on Pearl Harbor, and because she had not sought citizenship, she was declared an illegal alien and put into an internment camp. This was a gold star mother. Because she was Italian and the Italians were part of the access, maybe? Yes, yes, because they were declared illegal aliens. Oh my yeah, gosh. enemy aliens is what she was declared. Yeah. <laughs> um, Wait, like, really? Like, where was the brains? You know, like, I mean, her son was killed in Pearl Harbor. Like, she clearly isn't a, an, a, like fighting against America. Like, <laughs> they're really, oh my gosh. Wow. So, but here, what happened after the fact was that her story ended up in newspapers. It was published in newspapers in Southern California. And they basically, uh, because it had been editorialized so much, the government basically released her. That here was a case of a gold star mother whose child had died in the service to this nation. And she was in, (laughs) she was declared an enemy alien. Uh, but anyway, she, um, there were others, uh, that, um, I guess this had happened to as well. I don't think she was the only one. I don't know the other names, but, um, anyway, she basically was released and was able to, you know, not have to live in one of those camps. And, um, she had to, she had to move into a rundown apartment from where she was because her other apartment had, you know, been already leased again. And um, eventually she was able to return to her home. Uh, I guess the, uh, according to what I was able to find in newspapers, the um, national columnist and radio host, Walter Winchell got involved in her story and they that was basically how she was able to make it back to her own home. The government officially apologized and uh, so forth. Uh, so, yeah, that was that was a story that, um, you know, I made sure that I looked for Tom Travato's name and remembered his mother as well when I uh, went there. Um, another one that I came across just very recently, because I'm still trying to clean up the database and the names and so forth, um, there was a young man whose name uh, is Crawford Edward Scott, PFC Marines. He was on the USS Arizona, um, served as um, an orderly to the Admiral Van Valkenburg um, on the USS Arizona. He was one of many. I never knew what an orderly did, uh, so I had to find that out. And basically, they were kind of like the runner or an assistant um, to to any of the flagship officers, uh, the mainline officers. Um, what what I found very interesting about his story was that his mother lived to be 103 years old. Uh, She died in 2004. I think that was 2004, it might have been 2014. Um, 
But when she died, she was the oldest living gold star mother in the United States. That's crazy. It's amazing what you can find about it. You know, I mean, it, it's for her to have lived that long. Of course, she had other children, and um, but she lived a very long and, and I'm sure very fruitful life. Uh, she seemed to be quite the pillar of her community. It was a small town in uh, Missouri is where they were from. But um, yeah, no, 2004, I got that right. So yeah, when she died, and, and her obituary said she was the oldest living uh, gold star mother. So that was probably the last one that we lost in 2004. Important to remember these stories, huh? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, wow. That that's so <laughs> 103. That I'm, mm -hmm. wow, and, and then live that long, you know, after your your child's died too. I think my my grandmother had two of her children die before she did, mm -hmm. and she lived to be a hunt to 94. And she told me she's like, it's it's not it's no fun. Don't don't do it. <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's not. You shouldn't have to bury a child and you know, why I'm absolutely you know, really struggled, you know, yeah. sounds like to live that much later after your child had died, you know? Yeah. My, my grandmother, one of my grandmothers said the, those exact same words. It's no fun to bury your child because she outlived my father. And that was, that was very, very rough on her. He was her only child. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. That is, that is, that's really hard when that's their only child too. Which you see a lot in these World War II stories. Mm -hmm. do. Yeah. So uh, one thing I always love asking people is, um, has doing this project changed you or changed your perspective at all? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I think I heard one of the other um, uh, volunteers that you've interviewed spoke particularly about being a mother and a mother of sons. And um, it's just made me so very grateful that our sons have, uh, in so many ways, lived a very protected and privileged life. Um, the other thing that I think the Pearl Harbor Project specifically uh, influenced and has, has made a big impact on me was as we were looking at from the macro level of just all 2,341 who were killed, uh, the, the giant majority of them, I probably, my guess would be somewhere around 80%, and I should just run the numbers someday um, in my copious amounts of spare time. Um, <laughs> they were between the ages of 17, sometimes they lied, and they were probably 16 years old. And... 22 or 23 and it was in that lifespan that you know as a nation and I'm sure that you know that wasn't just to Pearl Harbor that it's specific to as a nation we lost so much potential and when you think about it on a global scale from whether you know you are um, of Asian 
uh, a distract extraction or European extraction, the, the world globally, we lost so much potential through a conflict like that. And when you see things happen today, like Ukraine or things that go on in the Middle East, that you know it's just what we lose as a human race is just, um, it's, um, it's unforgivable, immoral, um, and just so profoundly uh, wrong that, you know, you never know what potential has been missed with those oh, yeah. kinds of global uh, things going on. I really love how you said that and kind of got a little teary-eyed because I think it's it's true like you know when my uncle was killed like he was the oldest of his family and my grandma talks about how ambitious he was he had his pilot's license at 16 because he wanted to fly so bad he was the top of his class he he was you know the leader of the band he did all these things that were just so you know ambitious and he wanted to have such a full life you know and he was really outgoing and and to see you know what my grandmother and my grandfather did with their lives mm -hmm. you know and how productive and and you know my grandfather was an engineer and he built buildings all over the United States and and houses of worship all over the United States. And, and he was super successful with his life, right? And and to see what my uncle could have been, you know, mm -hmm. his, his you know, siblings went on to do great things too. And so it's like, I love how you said that. It's like, as a, as a, as a humanity, mm -hmm. by when that we lost so much potential, we, you know, by, by this horrific war. And, and it's so crazy too, because it's like, when we do this study, I love the, the one of the main reasons why I feel like we I spend a lot of time doing this is because I really feel like people as individuals sometimes feel powerless to do things. Mm -hmm. And it's important for the individual to know that they have power in the big acts of history, right? And we sometimes when we study history, we like read about Mussolini and Hitler and Truman and Eisenhower. And then we just think that that's what history was, was the decisions that were made on this grandiose level. But it really came down to those decisions that all individuals were making. And if those individuals had made different choices, maybe there would be a different outcome, good or bad, who knows, but mm -hmm. you need to understand as an individual that you have that power and you need to seize it and do something with it, you know, rather than um, sometimes let the big, scary, whatever, make those choices for you. Right. <laughs> like, and, so. and that everyone I mean, everyone plays a part. I mean, not that everybody's going to be an engineer and or an architect and do, you know, go on to be famous or do great, wonderful things in humanity, but everyone is important to the individuals around them in some way, shape, or form. Whether they're bagging your groceries, picking up your trash, they they are vital to our way of life. And they're important to us, and they deserve to be remembered. I'm interrupting the podcast right now to make a plug for our Arlington project. We're in the middle of it right now. We're hoping to get these done by the 4th of July. And there's so many amazing stories here to be found. So if you are new to the, to the project, 
please visit storiesbehindthestars.org and click the volunteer button. If you've already been a volunteer and you've just kind of gotten busy, consider giving a little bit more of your time and contacting us to get some names to start doing research for these Arlington stories. They're quite phenomenal and um, just be part of a really amazing national project. Um, and then also, if you're new to the podcast, please consider subscribing so that when we put out new episodes, you can be notified and you can listen to these really awesome stories as we're finding them. That's really beautiful. All right, my last question I always like to ask people is, what advice do you have for anyone who's thinking about joining or volunteering? Uh, um, well, I guess it's the, you know, the old, um, I think it's a, an Asian proverb that says that a long journey begins with the first step. And you just have to take that first step. So if you're interested, there's a lot of ways to get involved. I think particularly people who are interested in um, finding out details about things. If you're a, sort of a, a detailed-oriented person, the research end of things is just fascinating. Um, digging in, finding clues, and thinking about multiple ways to approach a problem. Um, and then the whole point of uh, becoming part of a collaborative effort, um, that you're not the only person that's writing all of these stories, that there are other people who are doing the same thing and they, they will have similar obstacles or challenges that they encounter. And so that's why I think the Facebook groups are, have been so very helpful and important. Um, the obviously the uh, learning materials are very helpful, but it, it's a welcoming uh, group of folks as well. I mean, uh, it's it's if you're interested in becoming part of something that's bigger than yourself, than your own little. Uh, place in the world, then this is something that you can do just, uh, you know, as Don says, it can be done in an hour or as many hours as you feel like you'd like to devote to it. And, uh, but the hardest part is just taking that first step and saying, I want to write a story and then just do it. Nike. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I a hundred percent agree with you. It's that first first leap into the unknown that's always the hardest and then and once you get going you know it's pretty exciting yeah. I think yeah learning is a collaborative effort and we all learn together uh, it's very social um, so yeah I I think uh, it's a wonderful organization I think Don's vision of doing something like this and I I'm I think he's um I think I've said to him two or three times that um I wish I had worked for some of the directors that I worked with had been as good at um, managing and putting forth a vision for what can be done in this amount of time uh, than two or three of them that I worked for. <laughs> but he, he's one of the better ones, one of the better visionary people. And I really appreciate and value that vision that he has and we you know we just need more people to 
step step out there and say, yeah, okay, I'll write one story. Yep, that's what we're looking for. And, and Don was just talking the other day to our state directors. Um, we had a state director meeting and he said, we just need, you know, 2,000 people to write a story, one story a week, and we'd be done in four years. And he's mm -hmm. like, there's 370 million people in America. I just need 2,000. You know, so it, it, like it's totally accomplished a goal that can be accomplished. And I think we're getting the ball rolling and, and we're going to get mm -hmm. there. Um, definitely going to get there. But um, I just think it's amazing to see that by choosing to serve and volunteer, like I feel like everyone I've talked to says it, it, that it's been a way more mutual beneficial experience than it has been like you know uh exhausting or difficult or you know it's oh. definitely hard that's not you know sometimes yeah, definitely not, hard things, I mean but. yeah yeah some of the stories are harder to write than others uh, and in some ways I find those to be more poignant and sad because it's difficult to find information about those folks and what you said earlier about just remembering the name is important because they're there's not much else left to remember about them. Yeah. Well, we are so grateful for all the work that you did. We understood that Don was saying, he's like, I, I, you know, I don't think Jackie and Allison and Kobe understood <laughs> the time that they were signing up for and, you know, managing this massive database. We changed things on, on our Arlington project. I think we have seven or we have mm -hmm. more people helping with right. the database management because I told him, uh, well, after we did D-Day, I was like, you got to get more than just one or two. And he's like, well, let's just try three. And then now we're like, okay, let's get seven or 10 because <laughs> it's just way too much work to put on one person's shoulders. But you stepped up and and really fulfilled and, and above and beyond anything we were asking and all volunteer. And, and we're so very appreciative of that. And, um, and we're so... And I think about it is I think, you know, your grandchildren and your great grandchildren will be appreciative of it, too, at some point when they're able to see these these digital memorials that will be here for, you know, for forever, you know, and that's really what the main goal is to make sure that this history is preserved in a, in a way that lasts for generations as we move into the digital more digital world. Oh, so. yeah, it's it's just it's the way to go now. I mean, books are one thing, but books sit on shelves. And when you start doing things digitally, you open up whole new worlds of being able to find information and having people remembered. 